Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. We're turning our gaze stateside this week, where the midterm elections promised a red wave and delivered, well, something more like a red ripple. A bad night for Donald Trump, a pretty good one for Joe Biden, and a fascinating tee-up for the presidential race in a couple of years' time. To chew over the results, we welcome back to the podcast my predecessor as editor, Oliver Wiseman, who since leaving CapEx has written for a number of outlets with breadth and eloquence about the US political scene. He's now an editor at Spectator World out in Washington, D.C., where his D.C. diary is a must-read if you're into American politics. Ollie, welcome back to the CapEx podcast. One-time host, one-time editor of this website, now gleefully ensconced in Washington, D.C., where you work for Spectator and you write the D.C. diary, um, which is a must-read if you're into American politics. I mean, this week has been a real smorgasbord of news if you're following American politics, the midterm elections have kind of taken over the sites here in the UK as well. The whole of the BBC front page was a kind of running ticker of the Senate and um, House of Representatives. Just to start off with, I mean, what is the broad picture here? The kind of main headline is it hasn't been this red wave, it's been a ripple. So where are we at the moment? Is there much left to go? Bearing in mind that this comes out on a Friday. So... um there is some stuff left to go. Is the is is the thing I'd start with. Um, it's and and, for, and also firstly, great great to be back, John. Um, uh, but the um, yeah, as as we're recording this, they haven't actually uh, called either the House or the Senate. Um, you know, uh, races and, and enough to say that you know one party will be in control of, of of either yet. But it looks like the 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 Republican Party will take back take the House. Um, and it looks like the it looks increasingly likely like that the democrats will hold on in the senate although uh we're still waiting for results in um arizona and nevada which are reasonably close uh nevada closer than arizona and then there's a georgia runoff election next month um so it could be that in a few days time or in a week's time we look at uh you know we know that the republican sorry we know that the democrats have have held on in the in the senate or it could be that we have this sort of blockbuster runoff campaign in georgia where you know the you know as we had in 2020 where where control of control of the um of the senate comes down to to this this vote so um in terms of what all that 
means. Uh, it means that basically the Republican Party had a fairly disappointing night. People had very high hopes on uh, in the GOP um, that they would take both the House and the Senate. You know, they thought the House would be a, a kind of complete walk in the park. Um, and, you know, actually, I spent uh, election night at Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, the leader of the Republican Party in, in the House at his victory party. Um, and, you know, the expectation was that he would be kind of on a stage by kind of 10 or 11 p.m. And he would be, you know, uh, with his fist pumping in the air, celebrating the fact that he was going to be the next uh, Speaker of the House, he was going to take Nancy Pelosi's job, uh, and that, you know, triumphant Republicans were kind of on the march in Washington. Um, and in the end, he didn't come out until sort of 3 a.m. or something, 2, 2 a.m., I think it was, and gave a kind of, he tried, his, he gave a sort of slightly... Um, kind of flat uh, speech in which he sort of tried to claim victory, but um, didn't really have enough to go on. Um, and the room was kind of half full. And um, yeah, it really wasn't the, it wasn't the night that uh, he, he or his party had hoped for. And what do you put that down to? Do you think, is there any kind of polling related issue here, as we've seen in the last few years with lots of big political events? Um, was it Republican overconfidence, a combination of the two or certain issues being more salient than people thought they would be. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Obviously, I'm, I'm aware, acutely aware of the old cliche that America is a 100-party democracy and things are very different in different states. But can you take some kind of broad lessons about what's happened? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, just to deal with the polling thing first, um, I think, um, firstly, it's hard to sort of definitively say there was a big polling error because... That there's so many different pollsters now and the polls were kind of all over the place so you know by definition almost some were right and some were wrong but um when you take a step back i think um the you know some of the models said that it was a kind of toss-up who would win the senate and that the republicans would, would would probably win the house um uh and that they you know so so what's actually happened is is not a million miles off that um i think interestingly people got kind of because polls have had a, such a bad few elections, people kind of didn't pay as much attention to the polls. If anything, they, the Republican expectations weren't about the polls. They were more about the kind of issues and Joe Biden's unpopularity and a kind of sense that they were winning the argument. Um, so um, in terms of why they are disappointed, I think it, one of the interesting things is, um, well, there's a, there's a lot going on. It's a whole a very big, uh, messy country. But one interesting thing is the um, some of the exit polls show abortion being a very big issue for voters. And the kind of narrative we'd, we'd been told before the election, and, and not just told, but I mean, I would have agreed with, was that, um, you know, abortion became a big issue over the summer after the Roe versus Wade decision was overturned in, in Dobbs by the Supreme Court. Um, but then it kind of faded into the background as people kind of sort of more everyday bread and butter stuff to do with um, inflation and the economy and crime and stuff came to the fore. Now that, and that was, you know, that was, that was borne out by the polls. Um, it does actually though look like um, abortion was quite a big factor on the night. Uh, I think, the, I think one exit poll put it the number two issue behind, um, behind the economy or inflation or however it was phrased. Um, and so one of the things Republicans have to do is they have to sort of take a look at their approach to that issue and uh, wonder how to square their convictions with their electoral politics. Um, 
And another factor I would say, if we're going kind to of running down the list, is is the former president. I think you know it was a very it was a very bad night for Donald Trump, uh, and that's maybe one of the more lasting consequences of of these results is that the um, slate of candidates, you know, in in the Republican primaries for specifically, particularly for the Senate um, races, you know, he he kind of had his pick of of, of candidates. The ones he backed did win. Uh, in races like Georgia, in Pennsylvania, um, in Arizona, um, in a bunch of other places, there's also kind of, there's sort of very, the sort of more moderate, more electable, um, or, or at least not necessarily more electable, but candidates with more appeal to independent voters who might have run for Senate, um, but didn't really want to run the gamut of a Trump-influenced primary, right? So in New Hampshire, uh, and in Arizona, there are two very um, there there are some there are some figures who are in New Hampshire, for example, Chris Sununu, who's the, the the governor, is a is a is a Republican who's very moderate, um, who um, elected not to run for Senate. But there's a scenario in which he would have won, in which he would have sorry, which he would have run, and which he probably would have won. Uh, and instead, Republicans had a um, kind of pretty Trumpy populist type who. Is just not the kind of you know could win in other states certainly but is not a kind of new hampshire uh you know new england republican um i think if you look at a state like um pennsylvania which is the sort of in some ways is the most embarrassing result for the republican party it was a close race but um john fetterman the democrat won and he won in spite of the fact he had a quite a serious stroke um right before the primaries and had a disastrous series of public appearances in which he clearly was struggling in his recovery um, uh, from that stroke, which is obviously a personal, personally very difficult thing, but also you know makes you a, a very beatable Senate candidate, to put it brutally. Um, and the fact that they failed to do so, and, and you know it was Trump's candidates that failed to do so, uh, really sends quite a clear message about Trump and his you know, the electoral drag that he is becoming now uh, for his party. And making matters worse for Trump, um, just to finish that point, is the fact that his his biggest rival um, for the um, nomination in 2024 uh, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who had an extremely good night. So, you know, we, it's always Florida, Florida now counts their votes very quickly and is obviously on the East Coast. So whenever you're watching an election, you always get Florida results very quickly. And you saw, uh, you know, signs of a red wave come come crashing crashing into into Florida. Um, Ron DeSantis won election four years ago by, I think, thirty thousand votes. And um, I think last time I checked, his margin of victory this time was something like one point five million votes. So he delivered a huge um, demonstration of his appeal. Uh, and then, you know, the, one of the questions in the, on the night was, was this, is this Ron DeSantis' appeal or is this the Republican Party? Is this a national story or is it a Florida story? And no, it turns out the red wave crashed into Florida and then fizzled out. Um, and so in terms of 2024, you know, that means that that means that Trump's biggest rival is has this is is now the kind of rising star of the party. The coming man looks like he knows how to win elections. Trump looks like he's a liability. So I think Tuesday night really did transform actually the 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 uh, politics of 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 the Republican Party. How involved was Trump in the actual campaign? I saw 
you know, the odd clip of him doing rallies. I mean, was he out there kind of on the stump all the time as if it was his own election or was he kind of in and out, kind of flitting in, making the odd statement? I mean, how, how central was he to these midterms? Now, he was inv- yeah, he was involved and he, he was he was doing rallies in um, states where, particularly states with candidates that he he supported and backed, like uh, Ohio or, with J.D. Vance or, or Pennsylvania or Georgia or, or uh, Arizona. So he was involved in terms of his his presence, um, um, and he was, but he sort of wasn't involved in in ways that were damaging to him too. In the sense that he was, he, you know, he he's a he's a fundraising machine, um, uh, and then but but in many ways sucks all of the kind of small dollar fundraising donations from other Republicans, um, and then doesn't spend any of that money on anyone else's campaigns or spends very little of it on on other people. So so another frustration within the Republican party is, 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 is financial too. Um, in the sense that Trump isn't really being a team player when it comes to, um, the cash, which is obviously so crucial in us politics. Um, and, and I think the other way in which he was kind of too involved is that he, he you know, it, he spent the final days of the campaign giving interviews, giving rallies, you know, speaking at rallies, um, and spent a lot of the time during those interviews and at those rallies essentially kind of, taking shots at other Republicans. So Ron DeSantis, he was kind of cracking jokes about on Saturday night in Pennsylvania and on in an interview on a flight from Ohio to Florida on Monday night, just right before the election, he was he was claiming that he had all this dirt on DeSantis and that it would be a big mistake if he ran and, and so on. So, you know, these are not necessarily, when things go well and uh, no one cares, but when things go badly, you know, our, you know, colleagues on the right start to get a little frustrated with that approach. Now, does that mean he's definitely going to lose a primary? No, I mean he could easily he could easily win the primary, and I think people have, have sort of assumed that his political career is over and been proven wrong several times before. And mm. The last time probably being um, probably being January the sixth. But um, but yeah, we, we'll we'll see what happens. I I just think, but if you separate out the kind of base from the from the party more generally there's a huge amount of frustration at him in conservative media among conservative candidate republican candidates um kind of across the board and and then that and that does count for something it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, that sort of brings me to my next question, which is, can you chart the point where Trump became more of a liability than an asset? I mean, bearing in mind... He obviously, you know, lost the presidential election by seven million votes. So he was already kind of behind with the, the general public. Um, but has he been getting progressively less popular as time has gone on? Or are there is there a kind of inflection point perhaps around January the 6th, as you said, where his image has been tarnished among a significant number of people or where people who previously might have supported him have switched? Um, well, there's well, there's there's a couple of ways of answering that. I mean, one one way is to answer it. One way to answer it is that he's never been that helpful uh, electorally, um, and that to say that in 2016 he did win a presidential election, uh, a close presidential election against a very unpopular um, and in many ways very bad candidate in Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, but I mean, I don't. I just want to caveat that by saying he's, there is a very interesting way in which he's turned out and and and. Uh, realigned kind of millions of of a certain type of white working class American voter, or actually just working class American voter. So you know that's an asterisk. But but there's 2016, and then you know a bad performance in 2018 in those midterms, which is normal for a president. Um, uh, a bad performance in 2020 when he lost the pre- when he lost, uh, failed to seek re-election, and a bad performance uh, this week. So if you know if you look at the track record of the Republican Party in the Trump era. That's not to say, you know, let's just, it's not a party that knows how to win elections very well. Right. And there's all these op-eds you've seen in the last few years, um, including after he lost the 2020 election, saying, oh, this is Trump's party now. He basically runs the show and all that. Do you think that's changed? A, do you think that was right in the first place? And B, I mean, has it changed after what we've seen this week? with, as you said, his a lot of his candidates not doing so well. His kind of, if I could make an analogy, it's he's no longer the kind of Heineken Republican or something. You know, he doesn't have that, the same sort of electoral appeal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of the, I mistake a lot of the um, stuff written about Trump and the Republican Party makes is it treats his rise and his appeal as, a, as like a sort of personality cult. Um and for sure, there is a sort of diehard Trump, pro-Trump group of, of Republicans. I mean, it's it's a significant sized group, but it's not the whole party and it's not even the whole kind of base, really. Um, and, you know, it's better to understand it as this kind of unlikely kind of coalition of, of different blocks of voters, including, um, you know, uh, pro, pro-life uh, religious conservatives, um a sort of that sort of that sort of post you know deindustrial uh you know economically struggling white working class rust belt kind of vote you know you can you can build this thing together piece this thing together um and so you know he's i guess i guess what i'm trying to say is for all that he is an extraordinary and kind of unprecedented um individual in terms of in terms of kind of president he wasn't everything the kind of electoral dynamics and so on aren't that 
sort of mind-boggling and that you know it would be it would be entirely normal if if in in the so if it, what we're dealing with is an unusual situation which is a former president trying to run again right um and i think that you know that in many ways that's the weird thing rather than trump and when, when it comes to trying to understand the polls and why he's still popular because if obama was served one term and then tried to run again four years later he would obviously be the front runner you know just the the last president is is always is that party's biggest name and biggest beast that's just how that's just how it works it's such a huge such a huge um office that you know it's not that surprising that you see trump miles ahead of other candidates in in polls for who who the next president should be um so the, but the question is whether that starts to change now uh, and i think it could who knows yeah, I mean, let's let's go down a little bit from the the White House and and the Senate. I, it strikes me as a very amateurish observer of American politics that here in the UK and in Europe, I think we we focus too much on Congress and not enough on individual states and particularly governors' races. So, if you're an, a normal American, you're probably more your life and the kind of things that affect it are probably more influenced by the state house than they are by what's going on in, in Congress. Um, and what were the kind of interesting governor races and how did those pan out? Um, well, and firstly, I would just say it's it's not just a, that's not just a, a UK failing. I think politics in America too is sort of, can often forget the state level stuff. But um, some of the big races that did get a big national um, following that are interesting, um, uh, well, one of them is Georgia, where it was a kind of rerun of last time. So Brian Kemp was the Republican incumbent who had sort of held firm against Trump um, over the kind of 20, you know, Trump called him up and said, you need to find me more votes, basically. And he said, hell no. Um, and has ever has been a kind of, um, en- you know, very high on Trump's enemies list ever since. Um, so he's interesting. And he was up against Stacey Abrams, who's this kind of, you know, um, Kind of hero worshipped among Democrats as this sort of savior of democracy and uh, built up in a slightly pre- preposterous way. Um, and she also refused when she lost uh, last time around. She also refused to sort of concede defeat, claiming that voter suppression and, and so on was the reason she had lost. So that there's, that's an interesting race, and it was one that the Republican won very easily, which sends kind of clear message about uh, you know his appeal in the Trump dynamic we were talking about earlier, but also. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams is this kind of seen as this kind of star on the left. She was even talked about as a, a vice presidential pick for Biden uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and she's now her record in politics is, you know, played play two, lost two. Uh, and so it's interesting to see where she goes. Next. Her reputation is kind of as an organizer as well, isn't it? As well. As yeah, she's 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 sort of uh, been very she's she's very effectively sold her. So I don't she's she's spun it such that she is the, the architect of the georgia victory in 2020 uh in the senate races um but nonetheless she is she is also clearly not a very good candidate um other interesting races are well there's a sort of what the votes are still being counted in arizona where um carrie lake who is a former she's a she's a sort of sort of maga maga world rising star former um tv news anchor in in sort of phoenix local news so it's very well known to voters and like uber uber trumpy and a kind of stop the steal um 
you know, own the libs kind of entertainment way. She's very charismatic. She's quite attractive. She's um, she's very slick. She looks like a newsreader. Yeah, she looks exactly yeah, like a someone who's been on local news. Yeah. yeah, and so she's currently. I'm looking now, and they, about three quarters of the votes are in, and there's sort of ten thousand votes in it. So that's a very close race. Right. Um, it's one in which, actually, interestingly, the Democratic Party. Um, Democrat money was spent during the Republican primary boosting Carrie Lake over more moderate alternatives. Um, the logic being that um, she'd be more be- beatable in, in, in the prime in the general. Um, but you know that's if she wins, that will really have backfired because she you know they've sort of created sort of Franken- Frankenstein's monster situation. Um, so that has got a lot of attention. Um, and then I guess the other one is the is is the Florida race where the sand the size of the Santos's win was in the governor's race was, was was is a huge national deal, um, and there's uh, yeah there was an interesting race in New York where it looked like for a minute um, Lee Zeldin the Republican candidate could actually pull off something very unlikely which is a Republican governor's win in in New York uh, he didn't um, but he did kind of do much better than Republicans done in the past so that's kind of an interesting interesting little subplot um story um but yeah this uh, you know the, but i would say though that the the kind of trend we're discussing about sort of republican disappointment uh in the house and the senate that did sort of scan across uh governor's races too although you know it's always a bit more it's always a bit less predictable and a bit less sort of straight partisan politics i mean one, one interesting kind of theme of this election actually i think is that we were told that, you know, you're always told that America is this like hopelessly divided country and it's just, you know, the red team and the blue team and and everything. Um, and actually, in a couple of states, there's an interesting amount of like ticket splitting going on. So in Pennsylvania, the Democrat won very easily in the governor's race, but it was a, by like 20 points, but it was a very close Senate race. So you, so you have a lot of people there who, who voted for different parties and different races. Um, ditto Georgia. Um, um so yeah i I think that's kind of a a sort of for those that are sort of want a kind of more less divided politics that's a kind of ray of hope i suppose yeah you mentioned um carrie lake in arizona there and i i saw something about a campaign video she did where she like smashes up a voting machine um which gives you an idea of the kind of tone of her style of politics i just wanted to know is the whole sort of steel narrative still a live thing has it kind of been relegated to the fringes or not or is it still something that a lot of republicans believe and how does it tally with the fact that you know we're having these elections now and uh you know some of their candidates are winning handsomely Uh, i think um it was always reasonably fringe in terms of people that actually believed it right i think that the problem was that um mainstream uh, Republicans felt the need to go along with it or felt like they um, couldn't uh, denounce it or distance themselves from it in quite the way they would they would have hoped. Um, I think what you, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, but I suspect that we're seeing that that kind of 2020 stop the steal or carry Lake smashing up voting machines uh, stuff is kind of, it will, I mean, it'll, 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 st- it'll stick around in the sense that there'll be a group that's into that, right? But I think that I suspect one of the consequences of the results are that the mainstream of the party doesn't 
feel the need to pander to that group in quite the same way that it it did um uh you know before the before before tuesday yeah we've talked an awful lot about the republicans here and partly because of the expectations being that they would do really well and they haven't i mean but what is the sort of mood and state of the democrats because i look at them and i see a party with a can as you said with a president with pretty bad uh, approval ratings who is going to be into his 80s if he runs again in 2024. I mean, this doesn't strike me as an optimal position for them. And then you have the kind of, there's this idea that they have been captured. The sort of, the mirror of the Trumpians is the kind of hyper-woke Democrat. I mean, is it as big a problem in the Democrats, that kind of very left-wing faction? Um, How influential are they in the party? Uh, well, I would say, I would say it's too big a faction. I mean, but then I, you know, I, I don't agree. Yeah, with I think, I think our listeners would probably be agree with you. But, um. uh, but look, I think well, what for, just to take a step back, the interesting thing from a democratic point of view last night was um, a couple of things. Firstly, Joe Biden would have thought he may be spending Tuesday night contemplating his political future and and whether he. Could, should or would be allowed to whether his party would let him run again in 2024 um and you know he's i think something like three quarters of Repo- of democratic voters don't want him to run again he'll be the oldest president ever he doesn't seem like he's you know without getting into sort of conspiracy theories he doesn't seem like he's uh at his absolute sharpest uh shall we say when he's out out, out in public that isn't a conspiracy theory though there's so many videos um, of like... and um and and you know instead of sitting in, in a sort of lonely white house as he watched his party lose control of the senate he he had a pretty good night he had the best night of an incumbent uh first-time president since 2002 which was the kind of post 9-11 rally around the flag do you remember the bush did yeah. very well yeah um and is in a is in a far stronger position than people thought he would be. Now, you know, not to kind of get too clever about it, but there is a way in which Biden doing well is sort of bad news in some ways for the Democrats because it means they it makes it harder for them. You know, if you take the view that Biden will be a hopeless candidate in 2024, what you want is you want it to that to be as abundantly obvious to your Democratic colleagues, right? It's now less obvious than it was last week. So from that point of view, it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, on the kind of wokeness, identity politics side of things, I think, I think that the, I, you know, in, I think, I, I mean, I believe that the party's views on identity politics, all that stuff, whether it's gender, race, whatever, is a problem, is an electoral problem for them. I think, though, that it was quite, a, again, it was, if, if, if you think that's true, this week's election wasn't necessarily that helpful for your argument in that um you know that the idea was that we're going to get you know if you're a democratic saying that you're going you're, you're saying we're going to get hammered because we're not talking about the economy enough we're not talking about inflation enough we need solutions to that we shouldn't be talking about abortion the whole time you know that's not going to resonate with voters well you know maybe it did um um so I think there it's kind of it, it's one of these results where it doesn't kind of if anything it sort of might give democrats permission to double down on not not on the abortion thing but more generally give democrats sort of an excuse a, a kind of 
it might sort of fool them into doubling down on some of this stuff in a way that ultimately comes back to bite them. But, um, but yeah, but then again, you know, there's interesting cases like um, John Fetton and the, the the candidate who won in, in Pennsylvania that I mentioned earlier, he's really emphasized the kind of working class um, uh, kind of ethos in his campaign. And he made an effort to reach out to the sort of more rural, more Trump, pro-Trump, uh, sort of pro-Republican, I should say, parts of the state, which looks like was actually a good strategy um, uh, that worked uh, pretty well for him. So, uh, so you know, there are some suggestions there that if you do take this more moderate, you take this more, I mean, he's he's, a progress, he's more progressive, but if you take this, if you take those voters seriously and don't just write them off as deplorables or whatever, um, then there's, ele there's electoral ground to be made there. Yeah. Ollie, just to finish off, I mean, over here in the UK at the moment, as I'm sure you know from your many friends and family here, uh, things are pretty gloomy. Um, consumer sentiment particularly is very bad. Inflation is, is very high. People talk spend endless time talking about whether anyone's turned the heating on yet. Uh, I mean, what's, what would you say is the mood in the States at the moment in terms of people's thoughts about the direction the country is going in, the, um, the economic picture... Because it seems a little bit more positive there than here. I mean, but how would you how would you frame things? Uh, I, I think I'd agree in terms of the economic stuff. Um, certainly, feels a bit more positive. I mean, I, that being said, um, well, a couple of things. Firstly, on the economic stuff, inflation is a very real problem. I think you know it's kind of disheartening to watch this campaign play out and and not feel hugely confident that there's a plan to address it beyond like leave it leave it up to the fed um and i think that more generally though in terms of the mood of the country if you look at the polls you know you get 75 80 percent of people say they think the country's on the wrong track and that we need to do something about it now that's obviously a, they think that for very different reasons um but <laughs> they don't all agree with each other but um you know one thing i think one of the lessons from this election is you know biden gave these very over-the-top speeches about how you know democracy was on the ballot and if if things went wrong you know could we even continue to call america a democracy after this week and um this very overblown stuff about his political adversaries uh, which may have been good politics you know maybe maybe he successfully did kind of um ah uh, the whole republican party with that kind of ultra mega brush in a way that helped him his party his party win but i think one question is you know can america just take a step back Look, look at the fact that they had a what I would describe as a normal ass election this week, right? Like the votes, the votes are counted, everything's fine. Um, the sky hasn't fallen in. Um, you know, this is just the normal back and forth of politics. Um, you know, and or, or do they have to stick to? Are they are they sort of addicted? Is this country kind of addicted to this narrative that like every election is the most important election ever and could be the last one you ever get to vote in and so on and so forth. So. I guess to go back to your question, I'm, 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 am I worried? I'm worried about, I'm worried about sort of how I'm, I'm worried about the kind of tendency to freak out. And I, I just wish people could sort of take it down a notch and realize that um, at least when it comes to the politics, uh, you know, everything is broadly speaking fine. <laughs> everything is fine. What a lovely sentiment to. <laughs> I feel like I'm that, 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 I'm that, I'm like that meme with the, uh, the, the, the fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Ollie, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to catch up.
and uh, we look forward to reading more of your thoughts on American politics in a variety of outlets, mainly in The Spectator um, and in the DC Diary. So thank you very much and uh, we'll see you soon. And thanks to you all at home for listening as ever. Please do tune in for the next couple of episodes of the CapEx podcast because we've got some really good guests lined up. We've got the US economist Tyler Cowan and the Zambian development economist Dambisa Moyo. And both Tyler and Dambisa are guests at our upcoming Margaret Thatcher Conference on Growth, which is on Monday the 14th of November, that's next Monday, at the Guildhall in London. Uh, tickets are still available for that, so please do snap them up because it's a great lineup and it promises to be a fascinating day. Thank you.